0: Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations held by the NCC. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, which is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. During these challenging times, increasing awareness and understanding of the Constitution is more urgently important than ever so that we can learn together in order to form a more perfect union. It is central to the National Constitution Center's mission to convene discussions like the one we held last Friday, a national town hall discussion about policing, protests, and the Constitution. We'll share that town hall today with you in two parts, Part one is my conversation with former Chief Judge Theodore McKee of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Part two features some of America's most distinguished scholars on policing, protests, and the Constitution. Professor Monica Bell of Yale Law School, David French, the writer and constitutional lawyer, Janae Nelson of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and Professor Ted Shaw, of the University of North Carolina. The Constitution Center will be convening more of these town hall discussions in the weeks ahead. Thank you for learning with us and for tuning in to learn more in the weeks ahead. It is my great honor to introduce Judge Theodore McGee. He has been a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit since 1994, and he served as chief judge from 2010 to 2016. Before being appointed to the federal bench, he was a state trial judge. He chaired the Pennsylvania Sentencing Commission, and he was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania and deputy city solicitor for the city of Philadelphia. He's a great Judge and a great friend of the National Constitution Center. Judge McGee, thank you so much for joining today. I wanted to begin with some moving words from you. In a reflection celebrating your quarter century on the bench, you wrote that you grew up in Rochester, New York, in a small town near Scottsville, in 1947 and you said, I still have vivid images of fire hoses being turned on the peaceful marchers in Birmingham, and of college students sitting in segregated lunch counters and getting ketchup poured over them and being insulted just because they were demanding the right to eat in public accommodations. And You went on in subsequent writings to talk about, I think that says something about how deep racism is ingrained in all of us. If Nelson Mandela can have that thought upon seeing a black pilot, I would submit to you that none of us is beyond the destructive and poisonous reach of racism. Judge McKee, in light of the extraordinary events that have convulsed America over the past weeks, what are your reflections about who we are and the future of the American idea?
1: Well, if your remarks are incredibly apropos in your reference to Nelson Mandela's passage in his book where he talks about the fear that overtook him upon seeing a black pilot. And then at that moment realizing how he had internalized the racist messages that he grew up around. I really think that is something we must address if we're to ever really solve this problem. I don't have a lot of hope. I'm more hopeful lately because of the diverse nature of the people who have taken to the streets and peaceful protests to demonstrate and, and ask for redress. But I'm still not hopeful. And I think we can't really make progress until we come to grips with Who we are, and in that, directly responsive to your question. I read uh, from an editorial columnist who I have great respect for last week in the Philadelphia Inquirer column, where she said, This is not who we are. And upon reading that, I thought to myself, I'm not so sure about that. This country was born. and slavery it was funded, funded upon the institution of slavery. The institution of slavery greatly funded, primarily funded the American Revolution. The United States Constitution, which some people have referred to as a sacred document, deals with slavery by perpetuating the slave trade, guaranteeing the federal government can't interfere with the slave trade for 20 years after the passage of the Constitution. Um, what we're saying today, I think, is the direct result of a lot of governmental policies as well as social, policies, There is a concept called shooter's bias. And I think in order to really understand what's going on with excessive force, it's something that people need to understand. They can just do a Google search of shooter's bias and they will get the research, it'll come right up. But many, many studies have shown that police officers are much more inclined to shoot uh, unarmed black men than they are armed white males. And this is because of the imprinting of the bias, the subliminal bias that you referred to, that that starts teaching us from the very beginning when we're born that black people somehow are to be feared Um, and that our rights are not as worthy of protection as as white folks are. There's a wonderful book called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, where he traces the segregating of America, not by, Living patterns and people moving to better school districts, but by deliberate governmental attempts arising after um, the Second World War, to lesser extent the First World War, in housing policies, housing funding policies, who got funded to own homes, that policy continued. Going back before that, when slavery was ended, the country went to a system, at least in the southern states, of of um, slave, of, of convict leasing, which was really just a uh, metamorphosis of a slave system, which had preceded it, until we realized that is not only a large part of who we are, but also that the subliminal bias that you referred to, that it is in all of us, that has got to be taken as who we are. A statement was once made many years ago that a black person, then I think the term was Negroes, have no rights that a white person is bound to respect. That was not made by a a member of the Ku Klux Klan, or they may have been a member of the Ku Klux Klan, was made by the then Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. And the opinion in which he wrote that statement, Uh, Dred Scott was joined by six justices. So the United States Supreme Court speaking through seven justices offered by a single justice made the proclamation that black folks have no rights that a white person is bound to respect. The Kerner Commission years later talked about a uh, a society that we're evolving into two societies, separate and increasingly unequal, going back to the language of versus Ferguson uh, in the late 1800s. That to me is who we are, and until we come to grips with that fundamental racist boogeyman that has infected us since the very beginning, so what some have referred to as original sin, we're not going to be able to get a handle on this because we're not going to be able to honestly confront what is really at the root of it. There, there are laws which are put in place which are very noble uh, in their uh, 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 reach and very in their noble in their idealism, but those laws are not consistent with what a lot of people in this society are experiencing. And we can certainly get into the laws that protect people assembling and also protect police officers from civil lawsuits. But until we really come to grips, as I said, with who we are, the police officers that are responding in large part to what they've been taught subconsciously, I'm not saying they're all racist, but I do think each one of us, including black folks, as Nelson Mandela pointed out, has that grain imprinted in them from society, that there's something inherently uniquely different about black folks that sets us apart from from white folks. And we've, we've got to realize that. Thank you, Judge, for those
0: extraordinarily moving and important opening thoughts, for recalling the words of Chief Justice Taney and recalling the heroes who opposed him, including John Brown and Frederick Douglass, all of whom are described in the exhibit on the Civil War and Reconstruction, which is in the building, behind me and which I can't wait to welcome everyone to once we can open again. You mentioned uh, two large topics, uh, police immunity and the rights of protesters. We already have lots of questions from our friends who are watching, and many of them deal with police immunity. Donna Ferrari asks, until recently I didn't know there was police immunity. Where did that concept come from? So Tell us about this idea of Police or qualified immunity, where it come from. And then tell us about how, you, when you were in the US, you, you had trouble getting convictions of some
1: officers because of this notion of police immunity. Well, we did. Well, I was, The situation I ran into was a little bit different. Qualified immunity, as it's called, refers to a protection from civil lawsuit. Um, and it says that in order for a police officer to be found liable in a suit for aggressive, uh, excessive force or something of that sort, of constitutional tort or a regular tort that the officer has to violate a clearly established constitutional or statutory right. And a reasonable officer in that officer's position should have known that he or she was violating a clearly established, or, 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 violating a constitutional principle. When we talk about what is a clearly established constitutional right, it gets, it's really easy. Everybody knows the right to speech, the right to assemble, the right to petition for redress, those are clearly established right. That's the easy part. The difficult part is trying to prove that an officer should have known that the conduct, and it is the conduct that they're engaging in, was such as to have violated that clearly established right. So you have to really get into the weeds of the individual's conduct. The focus of the lens is not at the level of the Bill of Rights, It's at the level of what was going on at the moment the conduct which gave rise to the lawsuit uh, occurred. Would someone in that situation have reason to know that they were violating a clearly constitution or a clearly established right? That usually requires a Supreme Court case or a circuit court case or a statute which would specifically tell the officer that their conduct was improper. It is there because we don't want situations where an officer has to second guess and hesitate their conduct when they're... Uh, affecting a legal arrest. So that if every time an officer used excessive force that was in fact found to be excessive by a court later on, they were liable, that would not be a good state of affairs. And so qualified immunity arose in order to protect the reasonable officer. And the the word reasonable there is really crucial. The reasonable officer going about his or her duties. And I can respond to the second part if you want to in terms of my own prosecution.
0: That, that would be great, because the story of your prosecution is
1: really interesting. This was many years ago. It would have been nineteen seventy seven seventy eight, where I was involved when I was resisting the U.S. attorney with uh, violating, uh, with, I'm sorry, with prosecuting police officers who had engaged in the use of excessive force using the federal civil rights statutes, And I can't get too much into the specific details of my case, because of, it was a grand jury material. But it was. In an attorney's dream case, it was a white defendant was set upon by a, I'm sorry, yeah, it was a white defendant, set upon by a police dog, controlled by a white officer. It was in the middle of the afternoon, so we don't get into the issue of uh, what were they doing out there in the middle of the night, they're up to no good. That kind of argument from defense counsel was taken off the table. The uh, victim did not have a prior record, so that was uh, taken off the table. Um, It was really the perfect record. I had... A uh, expert witness from the Philadelphia Police Force who was giving me incredibly strong testimony that eliminated the only problem I saw in the case, and that was whether or not the police dog simply didn't obey a command. Um, My expert took care of that. The grand jury did not indict, and after they handed back the unsigned um, uh, true bills, it's called. I asked the foreperson. I said to him, "Well, you didn't sign the indictment, thinking you just forgot to sign the indictment. How could you not indict?" And he said to me, "No, I I didn't forget to sign the indictment. We decided not to indict." And I asked, "Can I ask why?" And he said, "Well, you can't tie the hands of police officers. You're going around here with this, and you're going to tie the hands of police officers, prevent them from doing." their job. I asked them what the vote was, and it was about two-thirds not to indict to one-third to indict, which I was flabbergasted. And the person who was then U.S. attorney Jokingly um, told me that even though any Assistant U.S. Attorney could get an indictment against the hamburger. Somehow McKee couldn't get an indictment against a, a police officer when his main witness was an expert uh, uh, from the police department. It's very, very difficult to do. When you add into that the subliminal messages of, of racism, um, it becomes even more difficult. The fact that we've been defined, Black folks, as somehow being more dangerous than white folks. Um, It's easy for a jury to relate to an officer who says, I was concerned for my own safety, I thought I had to use that level of force to protect myself and to dissuade jurors from that uh, by proof which meets the burden for criminal conviction, and I'm mixing criminal and civil here, Uh, which is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, is extraordinarily difficult in the best of circumstances. Civil liability is not easy either because of the doctrine of um, qualified immunity that we just discussed, but that is a court created doctrine. It's not in statutes, it's not in the constitution. It's a creature of the courts.
0: With our next panelist, we'll delve into the point that you just made, Judge, which is that the original statute, the Ku Klux Klan Act of the Reconstruction period, did it was based on federal common law, and it was the Supreme Court relatively recently that created this doctrine of qualified immunity, and there are bills pending in Congress to change it. And uh, we'll talk more about those in a moment. First of all, I'm just blown away with the rigor and uh, magnitude of the questions from our friends. There are 57 so far, and they're really good. Um, well, that's, uh, heart- and, that's and, heart- and what also and is learning heart- 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 is that Anne Landenson writes, just looking at Judge McKee's bio, and discovered that today is his birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> 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 Thank, you. Thank you.
1: This was not <laughs> how you planned to spend <laughs> my birthday. No, was, well, was, I, I would ask everyone to say we, uh,
0: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We're glad to celebrate with you and educating the public about the Constitution. is a pretty great way to spend your birthday. There are a whole bunch of questions about the balance between the rights of protesters and the need to maintain public order Crystal Gaskin asks why are the rights of protesters repeatedly being denied their First Amendment rights nationwide can you give us a broad sense of what the law of protest is what-
1: broadly yeah. we all I think we all know that there is in the First Amendment one of the rights protected there there the other is is the right of assembly um, you have a right to assemble, to peacefully assemble. Uh, the government can place certain regulations on that. They can make they can regulate the time, the place, and the manner of the, uh, of the assembly, as long as they do so in a manner which is content neutral. For example, they can have one set of regulations in time, place, or manner for folks espousing a point of view that the government might favor, and another set of regulations which are uh, more onerous for folks who are uh, advocating a point of view the government disfavors. Within that, the basically, the right of assembly is protected. And we'll go one step further and and note that in terms of a civil suit, and this came up in the uh, Mr. Baptist case that many people are familiar with. In terms of civil liability, the right of assembly is also there. But there, the right of assembly really deals with a matter of public concern. If, if folks are going on the street because they're concerned, uh, for example, a large family is concerned that Uncle Johnny gave... Uh, on Monaco, the set and I should have gotten it, and you organized a parade around that. That is not the kind of assembly the First Amendment extends to. Very interesting. And without commenting on particular
0: cases, when can the police shut down a peaceful protest in order to protect the public safety of public officials? That's well, basically a,
1: when the protest begins to, when the conduct creates a clear and present danger of a substantial evil that the government's entitled to guard against, then the government can step in and do what they have to do to eliminate or minimize that danger. Again, it has to be in a way, in a way which is content neutral. So if there are armed folks on one side of the street that are identified as being left wing, and armed folks on the right side of the street that are um, um, identified as being right wing, and there's uh, tension going back and forth and conflict, and it looks like fights are going to break out, the police can step in and stop that, but they can't stop it by simply restraining the people on the left side of the street. They have to also restrain the people on the right side of the street or pose barriers so that they can't get to one another, which would probably be the better way to do it. That, that's very important, but there does, as you
0: said, have to be a clear and present danger and the standard test for restricting speech. From the Brandenburg cases, there has to be imminent risk of the substantial evil and the speech has to be both intended to and likely to produce that imminent risk. You, you can't just step in without an actual threat of disruption. Right, right.
1: And I will add to that the fact that peace uh, speech or assembly which is otherwise lawful uh, may have the effect of creating anger or hostility or provoking people, that does not remove the cloak of protection from that speech. Uh, And police need to do what they have to to protect the speakers in that situation. So and that is the Westminster Baptist uh, Church case. It is not the fact that people are offended by the speech, no matter how onerous the speech is, no matter how provocative it might be. In fact, in that case, and I can't remember who wrote it, I think it was Chief Justice Roberts, said, in fact, the most effective speech is oftentimes the most provocative speech. So we don't have what's called a heckler's veto. The person hearing the speech cannot intercede or be aroused and become unruly and thereby um, put a mouthpiece or a gag on the people who are otherwise peacefully assembling. James Klein asks,
0: does one have a right to peaceably assemble if it would violate a curfew?
1: If it's a generalized curfew, well, I actually probably shouldn't get into that because we have a curfew in Philadelphia and I can see those cases coming to me. So let me leave that one alone. Okay. Um, Beth George, are police
0: permitted to use force if peaceful protesters are protesting after the time of curfew? In New York, it seemed that different demographic neighborhoods are being treated differently, more harshly in the Bronx versus those in downtown Manhattan.
1: Well, when you get into differential treatment, there you do have a problem, Um, and the the, the state has a problem. They can't differentially treat people. If they have to exercise force to enforce a curfew, I don't know what you mean by force. I don't know whether it's uh, escorting the person off the street, if it's locking them up, arresting them. Uh, I don't know, but that gets into a very murky area. They can enforce a curfew. Again, they've got to do it in a neutral way, and that doesn't mean that the curfew is. Uh, are enforced in the black and the Puerto Rican neighborhoods and they're not enforced in the white neighborhoods, that would be a motion for for an injunction to stop that kind of um, dualistic behavior. And and give us a broad sense of what the Fourth Amendment law of excessive force is. How does the Constitution restrain the police? It basically has to be reasonable. Uh, reasonable in the context of the circumstances of the officer. Uh, and, and that takes in all of the considerations that can factor in uh, the, how boisterous the crowd is, how many people are around, uh, the physical positioning is the officer in a position where their back is to the wall or their back is to a vehicle and they can't safely pull out a baton or can't get to the pepper spray or they're afraid if they reach for the pepper spray that they're going to be attacked. But it's got to be reasonable, it can't be based upon fear. And I'd say irrational, but that kind of contradicts what I said at the beginning, because when you start from the assumption of the level to which we're all trained to view black folks as more dangerous, one could then argue that they're acting reasonably when they uh, act too quickly to use force which becomes excessive. That's not what I'm talking about, by the officer acting reasonably. I'm talking about an objective kind of reasonableness, not a subjective kind of reasonableness.
0: There's the famous... Case of excessive force, the Tennessee Garner case, which says that it's not reasonable to use deadly force to stop someone who's fleeing. Tell us more about that.
1: Well, it's exactly it. If someone is running running away, it's no longer re- the, the reason for using force would be to protect oneself, possibly to effectuate a um, legal arrest. If someone is running away, there's no need to act to protect yourself of your. Uh, an officer, um, I guess it's probably a little bit trickier when you get into whether or not you can do that to effectuate an arrest, but I think the law is pretty clear that you can't do it. There are other means by which you've got to try to effectuate that arrest. You can't just um, point the gun and shoot. There's a body of law, called, when you get into fleeing felons, and the extent to which you can use deadly forced uh, a fleeing felon, that is, again, something that I can see popping up in our court, and I probably should should not get into that
0: a series of questions about your really powerful comments about unconscious bias. Carolyn Burns says, I believe biases are taught not imprinted since birth. Give us a sense of your thoughts about how best to combat the unconscious bias that you described.
1: I think first we have to be aware that they're there. Um, And when I say imprinting, I would view imprinting as a kind of teaching. So I don't mean teaching in terms of uh, formal education. It is imprinting, and I call that teaching, it's a kind of collective social teaching. But we unless we recognize they're there, we can't fight them. The studies that I talked about with shooters bias have also shown many of them, that when officers are shown the extent to which they're more apt to shoot an unarmed black person than an armed white person, they will then take measures to reduce that level of um, irrational impulsive reaction. I don't know of any study has been, uh, that's been conducted in a long-term follow-up. The studies that I'm familiar with have been conducted with one set of uh, imprinting or, or conditioning of the officer, measuring the response, and then dealing with the officer's responses, showing that they're biased, and then testing again. Um, I'm not sure, and I know there are some scholars in this area and who say, you can't fix that, you just can't fix it, that maybe you can fix it for a day or a week or even a month, but long-term, the messages is just too ingrained and you just cannot fix it. It's a complicated problem because you don't want officers to have to hesitate for too long when they're on the street. So you don't want them kind of going through a whole kind of sociological, anthropological analysis before they use deadly force if they reasonably believe they have to use deadly force in that situation to protect themselves. But you also don't want officers assuming that a situation involving a black person or black folks or Hispanic people uh, necessarily rises to a level of justifying deadly force, whereas they wouldn't you know, in a white neighborhood or with a white person or a, a more affluent person. And I should mention also it's not just about race. So that's, that's a huge part of it. I think it's, it's class as well as caste. And what race I would put in the caste basket, I think it's also class. I mean, uh, to the extent that someone appears to be disadvantaged and poor, um, I don't think they'd catch the same kind of hell that black folks would catch if it's a, a poor, disadvantaged white person. But they're certainly not uh, immune from the kind of disfavored social views and disfavored social treatment. Fascinating. Just the, the questions are coming so
0: powerfully. And I, I think it's time for your Closing thoughts before we bring in the rest of the panel, but we're getting several questions from our friends asking about whether or not you think that the Constitution is still serving people in the 21st century. So your thoughts on that and any other final
1: uh, wisdom that you'd like to leave our audience with would be great. Right. Well, it, from the beginning, it always served people. Uh, as I mentioned from the beginning, it served people who are importing slaves for 20 years to protect the right to import slaves. It's always served people. The question is, does it serve everybody in the same way? And I don't know. Uh, i am not I'm a little more hopeful now, as I said earlier, because I see the heterogeneity of the people who were out there peacefully protesting. I saw one shot the other day, I think in Washington, of it must've been about 55 people peacefully kneeling to commemorate uh, the memory of uh, George Floyd. And I, don't, and I made it a point to count. I think I counted the three black faces identifiably black in that crowd, there may have been others that I couldn't identify as black. In that sense, I'm hopeful, but I've been hopeful before. I was hopeful when uh, they had the march across the Selma Bridge, the second march across the Selma Bridge. Um, I was hopeful when the Kerner Commission came out after LBJ appointed a commission to look into the the reasons for civil unrest and try to do something about it. But the statement from the Kerner Commission that I mentioned earlier is no less true today than it was back in 68 when the Kerner Commission came out and said that we're a society increasingly divided and increasingly unequal in terms of our mat- maternal death rates. I think if you look at this, does not sound as far as filled, it's not as far as, as it as it may sound. The maternity um, uh, birth rate or uh, death rate in the United States, I think is either first or second. If you only look at the um, maternal death rate, the survival rate of, of babies of Black and Puerto Rican folks, we're 13th or 14th. Now that statistic was several years ago. I doubt we've gotten any better. The mayor, the governor of Minneapolis, gave a beautiful speech the other day, where he talked about how Minneapolis was second only to Hawaii on a happiness index. How Minneapolis uh, residents were thriving in terms of education and 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 safety and well-being. But then he said that it, that's if you're white. If you look at how black folks are favoring, it's a very different story. And that's, that's a national scenario. So in terms of the Constitution serving people, it certainly protects fundamental freedoms. I'd like to think we're moving to a point where it protects the fundamental freedoms of everybody the same. That's the principle. We're trying to get there. That's the large part of what courts are there for. Whether we'll get there or not. I just don't know. The criminal justice system certainly needs to be worked on and some of your panelists may well be able to address that. I think that's where you see the biggest inequities in terms of how the constitution protects different people in different ways. Thank you so much, Judge McKee for an inspiring
0: conversation. It's so meaningful that you took time as a representative of the federal judiciary in these anxious times to educate our fellow citizens about the constitution and your words of caution and your words of hope are very, very meaningful. So, so. Well I
1: appreciate it. as I say, I'm not super hopeful, but as my grandmother used to say, and I think it's a saying of a religious domination, it's better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. I don't want to sit around cursing the darkness. So this is my candle for the day and I appreciate being asked to light it. Thank you. Thank you for spreading light and we're happy to give a candle for your birthday as well. So <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> thanks.
0: Today's show was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Maggie Gillespie, Lana Ulrich, and the Constitutional Content Team. This week's episode of Live at the National Constitution Center is a crossover with our companion podcast, We the People. All of us at the National Constitution Center are here to learn with you by continuing to convene these urgently important constitutional conversations in the weeks, months, and years ahead. You can find these conversations every week on Live at the NCC and also on We the People. Please subscribe to both podcasts and continue to educate yourself about the Constitution. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.